We're so thankful you've chosen to tune in on whatever platform you're using, whether Podbean or through Facebook or iTunes. Whatever way you're listening, I just want to say thank you for joining in. We'd love to hear from you, so drop a comment to us or email us at thegrove267 at gmail.com. If you want to know more about us as a ministry, go to hisgrove.com, or you can also check us out on Facebook at Deeply Rooted Ministries in Canton, Texas. We believe God wants to use these messages to spread His truth to a needy world, but primarily a needy church, which needs the truth of the Word to resurrect among us so that Heaven's army will be equipped to win souls and train them up in the Lord. Jesus said if we know the truth, it will set us free. So help us to bring freedom to people's lives by sharing these messages in any way you can. Now to our podcast. Well, good morning, listeners. It is a hot and dry um, day. It has been a hot and dry summer. Uh, I'm looking out the windows right now. Literally, like, everything is dead. Um, But uh, praise God that... (laughs) We've got life and we've got well water. We're able to, to uh, still maintain stuff. And um, so, yeah, it has been a hot and dry summer and August is coming, which is typically our hottest month. So we are expecting that it is going to get hotter and it's going to get drier. But again, God's faithful and uh, we're thankful for that. And there's always reason to give thanks for it. So we're going to keep going in our study through Luke. We're going to be hitting chapter 17 today. We've got uh, kind of a multitude of topics to discuss and to go through. So we're going to get right into this. And uh, hopefully you guys have been joining us or joining me on this journey through the book of Luke. If this is your first time listening, welcome. Um, there is 16 other chapters that I would encourage you to go back and listen to. Um, if this is your first one that you're listening to on it. So we're going to get into this. It says, And he said to his disciples, Temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin or to stumble. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. All right, so this one, I think a lot of times people talk about, but we don't really grasp exactly the magnitude of what is being spoken of within this parable, within this, the context of what Jesus is trying to tell us. So for one, he's now bringing his disciples into the grouping of what he's talking about. So in the previous two or three chapters, his primary audience are the Pharisees and the scribes, the people who were grumbling that Jesus was eating with tax collectors and sinners in an effort to lead them to repentance, the people who were justifying themselves, the people who were lovers of money, the older son, the, the 99, the nine, all those things were um, illustrations Jesus was giving to the Pharisees and the scribes to try to put them in their place, to give them a warning, to teach them. And here we begin kind of for the first time, in chapter 17, he's now kind of addressing his disciples. Now, disciples doesn't mean followers necessarily. Disciples simply just means what the word says. It's students who are seeking the disciplines of the faith. They are those who are trying to learn more about Jesus, similar to Theophilus, who sent Luke off on his journey to go discover, you know, who's writing this gospel account, and he's writing it for Theophilus so that he might have certainty concerning the things that he's been taught about Jesus. He was somebody who was a student. It didn't mean that he was a follower. So these are just people who are there 
probably with the Pharisees and scribes, who are standing there, sitting there, whatever, and he's now addressing them. He's now turning his gaze from the Pharisees and the scribes of trying to teach them and instruct them and even warn them. And he's now primarily going to his disciples and he says, hey guys, I got something I want to tell you in the midst of all this. And here's what he tells them. He says, if you're going to cause one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble or to sin, man, woe to you. It is not going to go well with you. So you better make sure that you're paying attention to yourselves, that you're not causing people to stumble. Now, recently I was in the discussion, and we were all on the same page on it, so it wasn't a debate or an argument or anything. We were just on the same page. But this topic kind of came up in terms of alcohol. And the, the reality is, is that alcohol, there, for me, there's only two qualifications that the word puts on the use of alcohol for a believer. One is, is that you always stay in a sober-minded state. If you get tipsy, if you get to a place where you're not really level-headed and you're not thinking straight, then you're in sin. I mean, it's just, it's clearly put in scripture. Um, do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit, as Ephesians 5 says. It's, you need to be filling yourself less with the alcohol and more with the things of the Spirit so that the Spirit can control your mind and not the alcohol. Because alcohol absolutely will. You get to a point where you're tipsy and you're not level-headed and you're not sober-minded, it can control your mind. All right, That's one element of sin. Okay, The other one is if you're causing another person to stumble by what you're drinking. Okay? Now, it's not just alcohol. This can be in uh, terms of you know food that's kosher or not kosher, as Romans 14 talks about. A, a day you celebrate as opposed to people celebrating all days as keeping them as holy. Whatever it might be, when your preferences uh, become a stumbling block for other people, Jesus says, woe to you. I'm coming after you. Now, we might not think of Jesus like that because he's just a little lamb, right? Well, Leonard Ravenhill has a quote where he talks about it and he says, you know, everybody thinks he's just a little lamb, right? Nothing sweeter than a little lamb. He says, well, there's going to be a day where the wrath of the lamb comes. He's not just going to be this little lamb that you think he is, like Jesus is my homeboy, he's my friend. He is Lord. He is King of kings and Lord of lords. The wrath of the Lamb will come, and you do not want to be on that side of it. That's why in Ephesians 3 and, and going into 5, he talks about it. He says that, I think it's actually in just chapter 5. Um, he says that the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience, therefore do not become partners with them. And in 2 Corinthians 5.10, going into chapter 6, verse 4, I'm sorry, verse 11 of chapter 5, he says this, um, We must all stand before the judgment seat of Christ, each of us to give an account for what we've done to the body, whether good or evil. Knowing the fear of the Lord, then, we persuade others. It's not something you want to mess around with of just causing a brother to stumble. And that's who this is referencing. In Matthew chapter 18, 1 through 6, I'm going to give you just a little bit more clarity on this one because this is kind of the exact same correlation that he's giving to them right here. And I'm just going to say, and start in verse 5, whoever receives one such child in my name, this is in chapter 18, if I didn't say that, receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin... Listen to what he says. It would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. It's the exact same thing, but he qualifies it and he says, one of these little ones who believe in me. 
you cause them to sin or to stumble, man, you better understand what you're doing is not good and I'm coming after you because it would be better for you to tie a millstone around your neck and throw yourself into the sea than if I get a hold of you. In Galatians 1.8, here's what Paul says. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. You see, God doesn't mess around. The spirit of God that he causes to dwell in us shouldn't mess around. When somebody is leading another person into sin or causing them to stumble, we should take it seriously. We should call them out. We should rebuke it. We should bring truth to light so that the darkness cannot have domain. Now, there's a place for having patience. There's a place for doing things in a, in a mentality or a spirit, a way of love. And then there's sometimes just a firmness that we need to make sure that we have in our tone and in what we say. Because it is that serious. And I want you guys to understand this because... There's a reason that it's in here. And in fact, this, this concept that's here is even found in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Let me turn to it real quick so I can read it. Because the concept here, when you understand the spiritual side of things in this new covenant, that we as the church are the temple of God. God no longer dwells in temples made by human hands. It's not about a building. It's not about a temple of the Jews. You don't have to go to Israel to find the presence of God in some way that's just greater than what you already have inside of you or inside of your brother or sister in Christ. This is one of the things that I, I don't grasp and understand. Would it be cool for me to go to Israel and to go see Jesus, or like the place where Jesus walked and talked and, and get a picture of some of those things in my mind whenever I read the scriptures? Yeah, that'd be great. I would love to have an opportunity to go. But do I put a greater emphasis on the territory of Israel and the place in which the temple was more than I do in the place in which the temple is? No. We are God's heavenly Jerusalem as the church. And we are the dwelling place of His Holy Spirit. And we would do well as the church to remember that and stop thinking that it's a physical location. Listen to what he says in 1 Corinthians 3. Do you not know that you... It's a plural form of that word, you. Do you not know that you are God's temple? And that God's Spirit dwells in you. He says, you, it's not the building. It's not Israel. It's not the temple there. You are God's temple. And His Spirit dwells in you. The Shekinah glory of God dwells in you and I. We are the temple. We need to stop being consumed so much with where Jesus was that we lose sight of where Jesus is. But listen to what he goes on to say in this warning that Paul gives the church in Corinth. He says, if anyone destroys God's temple... God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. Let no one deceive himself. His whole point is, if somebody is going to lead you astray, if somebody is going to cause you to stumble by what they say or by what they do, if somebody is going to cause you to, to fall into sin, God's coming after them. It doesn't matter if you are one, like a child of His or not. God will judge His people. He will come after you. And He will seek to correct you and put you back in your place. It's what Jesus did to the Pharisees. They were part of God's people. They were Israelites. They were Jews. They had the ancestry. And Jesus often sought to put them in their place. 
It is not okay for us as Christians to cause another brother or sister to stumble because simply of our preferences of what we want or don't want in life. And this is one of those things. That's why it says in verse 3, so pay attention to yourselves. This is a group, not just individually. This is something that you need to be watching out for your brothers in this. If you have a brother or a sister who's not abiding in this, you have a brother or sister who's saying, ah, you know what, I'm just going to go ahead and do what I want to, and I don't care how it affects them. They should have been stronger. You better make sure you call them out. Now, there's a right way to call them out, and there's a wrong way to call them out, but you better make sure you say something. He goes on and he says this in in continuation. If your brother sins, rebuke him. Now this word for rebuke is epitomeo and it means to show honor by taxing one with fault and charging them sharply to repent. You can go into the Thayers and the Strongs. You're going to find that concept there. And, And I love that it even includes in there to show honor because we don't usually think about rebuking as something in which we're showing somebody honor. But that's exactly what this word entails. It's something in which we say, no, no, no. We, we show them the greatest honor of affixing value to them, that we care enough about them to rebuke them from the wrong that they're doing into the right that they should be doing. And this is something that he charges them as a body with. Not just individually to watch yourself, but to watch yourselves. Keep an eye for everyone else, including yourself, to make sure that you guys don't fall into this trap of causing others to stumble because of the perceived liberties that you have. He says, if your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns, which is a Greek word, metanotoneo, it means to repent or to change the mind with abhorrence of their past sins. He says, if a brother turns and repents and he is abhorring those things that he did and it's evident that he's abhorring those things, he's repentant. And he says, look, if he turns to you seven times saying, I repent, then you must forgive him. Colossians 3 and I believe it's Ephesians 5 again talks about this concept. We need to forgive as Christ has forgiven you. In the same manner. And how does he forgive? Well, 1 John 1, 9 says it. Even John, writing 60 years after his conversion of knowing Christ and walking with him and the new covenant being established in 33 AD when Jesus resurrected and when he died on that cross and resurrected and death and life, that's when the new covenant began. As Hebrews 9 says, that it doesn't begin until the death of the individual who established it happens. So when Jesus died, the new covenant was ushered in. And John, about 60 years later, give or take, in Revelation, he writes, I'm sorry, in First John, he writes about this concept. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So in the same way that God in Christ forgives us, we forgive our brothers. If they confess their sin, we are faithful and just to forgive them of that sin and cleanse them from all unrighteousness. And you're like, well, hold up, hold up a second. I thought only God could cleanse from all unrighteousness. No, I'm, I'm talking about relationally unto reconciliation of that relationship. It's forgiven. And you embrace them as a brother. 
He says you must do that because that's how God in Christ forgave you and does still forgive us. Notice the condition. If we, Paul or uh, John includes himself, if we confess. Remember, this is like 60 to 70 years after his conversion. So this is a well-established Christian and not only that, a, an apostle of the faith. And he says, guys, I'm including myself, present tense. If we confess our sins, I want you to notice this also, it's not past tense. He's not alluding to back one day when he gave his life to Jesus that he was cleansed from all past, present, future sins. It, it doesn't say if we confessed our sins, he was faithful and just to forgive. No, it's present tense in the here and the now. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That means that you can have unrighteous marks against you. That means that you could be in a place in which you are unforgiven by God. This is what Hebrews 10, 26 through 31 talks about. And this isn't going to be my topic. What I want to talk about more so is, for one, exposing some of the fallacies of doctrine that's been out there today in what I just did. But two, I want to talk about you are commanded to forgive when your brother repents. We are commanded. It's not okay for you to be like, I'm just not ready to forgive you. And I've even heard the expression of saying, well, I'm not Jesus, so I can't forgive. I'm sorry, who is it that lives in you and you are in him? It's not okay for you to have a mentality of I don't need to live like him because, well, he was Jesus and he was, it was okay for him to do it, but I'm not ready for it yet. That's not okay. 1 John 2.6 says that if anyone says that they abide in him, they ought to walk in the same manner which he walked. And he walked in a place of forgiveness. So should we. And so going on in this one, I want us to understand if you seek to destroy God's temple, if you want to go up to the proverbial temple with a sledgehammer and you start saying, you know, I'm going to intentionally um, cause you to stumble, God's coming after you. It, it, it's, it's not a pretty sight. God's going to come after you because His temple is to be holy. And if you are the source of temptation for that temple to become unholy or that stone in the temple to become unholy, He is going to come after you. He will discipline you. And while, yes, Hebrews 12 talks about that He disciplines the one whom He loves as a child, there might be times in your life where that is not going to look very loving if you keep it up. And I also want you guys to understand the command that we have to forgive. So in verse 5, it goes on, he says, The apostles said to the Lord, Increase our faith. And the Lord said, If you had faith like the grain of a mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, Be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. He says, If you had even just faith the size of a grain of mustard seed, which is the smallest of all seeds, he says, You could do some pretty amazing things. And that, I think, is just a... a um, a perspective verse that shows us how little our faith really is when we're not doing the impossible in our lives. I mean, even just something as little as overcoming sin that we have the authority to do in Christ. If we don't even believe that we can overcome sin, that we're just always going to be sinners saved by grace. We're always just going to be the weaklings. We're always just going to be this and always just going to be that. And we'll never be able to be like Christ. Well, let me just tell you, then the devil's already got you deceived. Be it done to you as according to your 
faith. We're going to even learn that in just a second. But that is over and over and over. So what's the one thing you think Satan's going to come after? Your faith. He's going to seek to steal, kill, and destroy that seed of faith and not let it grow. And unfortunately, in in today's church and much of the doctrine that I've seen that's out there, he's succeeding. Because there's a lot of people who just don't have the faith to believe in what the Word of God has given us commission to do in this life. And that is to live the life that Christ lived in full. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. He's not talking about throwing a football 75 yards and scoring the game-winning touchdown. He's talking about all the things that God has commanded us in this new covenant through Christ to do. He says, I have access to do all of it through Christ. You have that sin in your life that you just don't feel like you have the ability to overcome? You don't. He does. Rely on that through faith. And He will give you the grace that is needed to overcome. And to be more than a conqueror through Christ who gave Himself for us. Notice, you're not more than a conqueror just because you said a prayer. You are more than a conqueror as you move forward. Let me, let me give you an illustration of this. In the Old Testament, I'm going through Deuteronomy with my kids right now. And in the Old Testament, um, because they, they correlate together between Moses and Joshua. Um, Moses wasn't allowed to enter the promised land. Okay, Joshua is the one. Yeshua is his Hebrew name. Same exact name as Jesus. Jesus is the Greek form of the Hebrew name Yeshua. Or Yesos, I guess, is the Greek form of it. Jesus is the English. Um, God gives them the commission. He says, be strong and of good courage. Be, be careful to observe all that I command you. Keep my covenant, all this stuff. And he says... Everywhere that the the sole of your foot treads, you will have victory and dominion and nothing will be able to stand before you all the days of your life. He says, as you move forward, you will have dominion. You choose to stand still. Well, you only conquer the territory that you're standing in right there, but you will not conquer any further. The point is this, is that even though we are now under a new covenant, the same premise is applied to us. That as we move forward in faith, we walk in the footsteps of faith, as we, the righteous shall live by faith. As we move forward in obedient faith, we will have dominion. So if you have that sin in your life and you're just thinking, I can't overcome this, and you're not doing anything about it, you will not overcome it. But if you choose to move forward in faith and say, I believe that God will give me what I need to overcome this. And I'm going to trust in Him or I'm going to do whatever I need to that's on my end to be able to refrain from this and to overcome this sin. And God will give you everything you need for a life of godliness. But it depends on whether or not you are training yourself for it. That's 1 Timothy chapter 4 talks about. And it's a sad day in the church when we don't train ourselves for godliness because he says, training yourself for godliness holds the promise both for this life and the life to come. Go read it. It's exactly what it says. I'm not making it up, not changing what it says. It simply just says, you training yourself for godliness holds the promise for this life and for the life to come. Now I'll let you go do some research as to what that promise is and what that looks like. I'm going to keep going. Point is, is we need to have faith. Jesus says over and over, be it done according to your faith. If our faith is weak, then there won't be a whole lot of supernatural stuff going on in our life. And I could tell you story after story of, as I've met with some brothers that are are becoming closer to me over the last even just few weeks of recollecting some of the things that God has done in my life over the last 
you know, 15 years since I've started a journey of walking by faith and getting to see some of these supernatural things that only God could be responsible for is kind of lighting a fire under me again. And there's still a lot of things that I've got to get worked out, a lot of things that I have to be sanctified in again, and a lot of things that I've got to be healed in and even have things reset that have healed wrong. Um, but it has kind of lit a fire and given me some, some a rekindling of hope and a rekindling of God's faithfulness and who He is and what He can do in our lives when we set our foot to move forward in faith. God can do some mighty things. So he goes on, he says, Well, any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep, say to him when he has come in from the field, Come at once and recline at table. Will they not rather say to him, Prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank that servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. Now what is Jesus trying to state here? I think it's pretty obvious if you just simply just take this for what it says. He says, look, it is not my job to, um, what does he say, uh, come at once and recline a table like before you're done doing what you're supposed to. Now I'm just going to go ahead and give you all the rewards of everything that's there before you've actually completed the task for which I commissioned you? No. He says, you don't do that. He says, you go out and he, does, he says this, prepare supper for me, dress properly, and serve me while I eat and drink. And after that, he says, then you get to come at table with me and eat and drink. See, that, that, that's how the, the, the Christian life works. It's not about what we can get in this life. It's about what we can give to God for His glory in our life. And afterwards, when we've done everything that we've done, we've endured to the end, then we recline at table with Him and He'll wipe away every tear. Death will be no more. As, what, as Revelation 21.4 says, it's after we have done our duty, after we have done what we've been commissioned to do in this life, not to live it up for ourselves, not to make sure that we're eating and drinking and getting married as we're about to learn just a little bit, but to make sure that we live as soldiers and not as civilians. Because here's the difference. As 2 Timothy 2.4 talks about, he says, um, oh man, now I'm getting two parables mixed up about a soldier serving at his own expense. Um, well, I'm going to have to turn to it. I apologize about that. This is one that I typically have memorized. But when I can't get the first few words of it, then oftentimes I'm a little bit lost on how the rest of it goes. So in 2 Timothy 2.4, here's what he says. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. The, the point is that he's trying to state is civilians are oftentimes about themselves. They're not the ones who are fighting. They're not the ones who are laboring. They're not the ones who are doing all these things for other people. Civilians typically do stuff for themselves. They're living this life for themselves. A soldier is the one who goes out and does things for the general and for the betterment of others. And while there are some um, elements of earthly soldiers that can be applauded and some of the courage and stuff, misplaced courage and the wrong things can be sinful. And here's what I mean by that. Paul isn't stating that we need to go off and be soldiers for an earthly kingdom. 
Because Jesus himself says that, look, here's the deal, guys. If my kingdom were of this world, then I'd have soldiers of this world. But my kingdom isn't of this world. My kingdom is of another world. My kingdom is of a heaven. And that's the one that I'm looking to enlist soldiers for who fight for the kingdom of heaven, not for any kingdom of this world. And we need to have the same type of courage and the same type of things that go on in our lives of displaying that courage and that fortitude and that, that devotion to a cause. We just need to make sure that it's the right one. And I think too many people get the wrong one and it's misplaced and therefore becomes sinful. It becomes something that God never intended us to be. We are supposed to be soldiers, but we've got to make sure that we're soldiers of the right kingdom. And let me just tell you, the right kingdom ain't America. The right kingdom ain't the country you're living in. The right kingdom ain't any country of this earth. The right kingdom, if you are in Christ, is the kingdom that belongs to Christ. That's the only kingdom that we should be soldiers for. And he says, look guys, after you've done everything that you are commanded, you simply say, man, I am an undeserving servant. I have simply done what was my duty. That should be our mentality. Man, we don't deserve anything. I once, I was, uh, once used this verse even and just said the word unworthy and, and a guy kind of corrected me on that. And he said, look, I, I know that the verse says unworthy, but let me, let me give you something to think about. Do you think that we were worth Christ dying for? And I had to think about it for a second. I was like, I mean, yes and no. He says, I, I believe that we were. I think God loved us so much that it was worth it for him to send his son for us. And in that way, we are worthy of that. I was like, man, I get get what you're saying. And and I would would have to agree. So I like the term undeserving better. I don't like the term unworthy as much, though I can see some semblance to that. I like the term undeserving better because I think that that, um, conveys a, a better picture of what's being stated here. We are undeserving and we should not live this life for our benefit, for our glory or for what we can get out of it. We should live it for the glory of God, for what he can get out of us, because that is the gospel. He goes on and he said, you can go look at 1 Corinthians 8, 6, uh, for that's one of my favorite passages. I'll let you go look that up. You can even pause this right now and go look at that because it is one of those gut check reminding verses as to what we exist for and how we exist and what we exist through. It's for the glory of God through the person of Jesus Christ. He goes on, he says, on the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered a village, he was met by ten lepers who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. That's going to be very key to understanding this one. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice. And he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered, We're not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, Rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. Now this is a great illustration, a great story that's there to give us an example of 
what it looks like when somebody is truly appreciative of what God has done in their life, realizing they are undeserving, realizing of who Christ is and the person of Jesus Christ, and realizing what God has truly done in sending Christ to be our Redeemer by taking on the sins of the world on our behalf. Something we did not deserve. We did not deserve grace being um, made accessible to us. We did not deserve God's mercy. We were sinners, and while we were sinners, Christ died for us, giving us an example of what we should do for the world, even our enemies. He says, look, there was ten lepers. These lepers would have already been deemed leprous and unclean by the priesthood, as Leviticus 13 says. If it says here that they were lepers and they were standing at a distance, then that means that they had already been deemed by the priesthood that was there in Israel that they had been deemed unclean. And there was to be no association with them. So they cried out from a distance, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. And he did. He said, look, go show yourself to the priest. And by him saying that, it wasn't him saying, go show yourself to the priest to show them that that you're lepers. It was go show yourself to the priest to show them that you've been healed. Even though they hadn't been healed yet. That's why I said, as they went they were healed. I get this picture of them turning around, believing by faith that Jesus was going to do exactly as he said. He says, I want you to go tell them and go show them that you've been healed. And they're looking at their skin and they're saying, I'm not seeing any effects, but I'm going to trust it as he said, and I'm going to go. I'm going to move forward in faith. And as they continue taking steps, I get this picture in my mind that slowly their skin started turning back to normal. And this is what I was talking about earlier, is that as we move forward in faith, the supernatural happens in our lives. If those lepers would have just stood where they were and been like, no, I demand that you heal me now. Do you think they would have gotten healed? It makes me think of the story of Naaman in the Old Testament whenever... um, you know, he was, I think it was Elijah, maybe it was Elisha, it's escaping me at the moment, but... um, He told him to go dip himself in the Jordan, I think it was seven times, and he would be be healed of his leprosy. And he's like, wait, wait, hold up a second. The Jordan is this nasty, dirty river. I am too much of, I'm too haughty, too proud to go dip myself in that. Why, Why can't we do some of these other rivers that are better? And he says, it doesn't work that way. You do it the way that it's ordered by God or you don't get what he says. Plain and simple. Naaman has somebody come to him and say, hey, it would probably be well for you to to do this. I mean, think about this. This is a good deal. So Naaman goes ahead and he does it. He does it the first time. Nothing happens. The second time, nothing happens. The third time, nothing happens. He goes and finally on the seventh time, he comes out and he's clean. No more leprosy. He's healed. Do you notice the correlation in which he had to put forth effort and start walking and moving forward before he found what the word of God promised to give to him? And the same way, we as Christians need to move forward in faith, even when we don't see it. It was 2 Corinthians 5.17, we walk by faith and not by sight. We walk by faith and not by sight. We don't go by what we see, we go by what he says. And we trust him in that. He's brought up the example of Jericho, and it's, hey, you got to march around it seven times, and on the seventh time, do it seven times, and then shout out, and the walls will come down. Man, they didn't see any semblance of those walls coming down, 
until they obeyed God in full and did what he said, and then they saw the supernatural happen. It'll be no different for you and I. Don't think that you can be stagnant and receive the promises of God. It doesn't work that way. And here we see that one of these guys was so appreciative that he came back and he fell at the feet of Jesus to just say thank you. Even saying he fell on his face. So undeserving and feeling in his heart that he was so undeserving of what Jesus had given to him. I mean, can you imagine being a leper and being on the outside of civilization? You weren't allowed to do many of the things that most people are allowed to do. You were looked at as, as unclean. You were looked at as a foreigner and even as a Samaritan. It made it worse. And in an instant, Jesus makes him whole. Makes him whole. And he comes back and he just falls on his face and he just is so thankful for what he's done. And let me just say this. How many times does Jesus do something in our lives and we just flippantly say, thanks, and we go about our day? How many times has he done something? How many times do we actually just fall on our face before him and give thanks to him for saving us? Or how many times do we just be like, thanks for the salvation, Jesus. Now let me go live my life today. I think every day we would do well to fall afresh on our face and to say thank you. To just say thank you for saving me. It goes on in verse 20 and he says, Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, The kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, Look, here it is or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in your midst, within your grasp. It's right before you. I'm standing right before you. What Jesus is trying to say to them is that the kingdom of God is not Israel. The kingdom of God is not the temple in Israel. The kingdom of God is not among the Jews. It's not in the spiritual sacrifices. It's not in the law. The kingdom of God is me. Everything has been placed under my feet. The kingdom of God is me. It's within your grasp. It's accessible because I'm standing right before you. And don't believe all these people are going to try to say, No, it's this and it's that. And he says, No, it's me. Jesus is the embodiment of the kingdom. You can even go into Hebrews chapter 12, and I brought it up earlier where it says that, um, that we as the church are the heavenly Jerusalem. And what is our position? It says we're seated in Him at the right hand of the Father. And He says all things have been placed under Jesus' feet. Well, who's the hands and feet of Christ? Who's the body of Christ? That means that we are part of the kingdom of God because the kingdom of God is part of us. Jesus is the embodiment of the kingdom of God. Everything God has given to Him. And if we are in Him, then we're part of that kingdom. And that's what He says in Hebrews chapter 12. He says, look, you have not come to Mount Sinai. You've not come to this mountain. You have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. To the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. To God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. And to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, the sprinkling blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. 
Jesus is the embodiment of the kingdom of God. And he says, it's within your grasp and you just don't even see it because you're not reaching. You don't even realize what's standing right before you. And that's why he goes on, he says in 28, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Jesus is the embodiment of the kingdom of God, and it was right before them, and they failed to realize it, and they failed to reach for it. Because they were looking for physical kingdoms. And let me just tell you, many in the church today are doing the same thing. Many are looking for physical Israel. Many are looking for the restoration of a physical Israel. Many are looking for the Jews to be God's people and that God's going to reconcile with the Jews and everything's going to be great and hunky-dory and there's going to be a rebuilt temple. And I've even had people who have gone as far as saying there's going to be a reestablishment of the sacrificial system, the Levitical law. And they're failing to realize that the kingdom has already been formed. It's a heavenly one. Therefore, it cannot be shaken. And that is what we should be thankful for. He goes on and he says, and he said to the disciples, the days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man and you will not see it. And they will say to you, look there or look here. Similar terminology to what was used earlier. He says, do not go out or follow them for as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will be the Son of Man in his day. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking, marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man... Is revealed on that day. Let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down or take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life will keep it. For I tell you, in that night, there will be two in one bed. One will be taken, the other left. There will be two women grinding together. One will be taken and the other left. And he said to them, where, Lord? I'm sorry. And they said to him, where, Lord? He said to them, where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. What? What is this about? And while there's some end times, you know, eschatology that's kind of involved in some of this, I'm going to kind of shelf that in order to establish a couple other points in there. And I would encourage you to go dig a little bit deeper. Uh, but just for the sake of time of getting through this chapter, um, I would encourage you to just go read in Daniel, go read in Revelation. You can kind of let the Spirit put some things together for you in that in correlation with maybe Matthew 24 um, and even 25. But the point of what he's talking about here is he says, look, guys, I want you to observe some of these things. I want you to realize that just as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the day of the Son of Man. Now notice he doesn't say days there. I'm sorry, no, he says days in this point. It's another point that he doesn't. He says, just as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. Before his coming, before that great day when the Son of Man returns, as he talked about previously, when he says it will be like lightning that lights up the sky, people are going to be eating and drinking, marrying and being given in marriage. Later on he talks about, he says they're going to be eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. What's he talking about there? He says basically people are going to be living it up. They'll be living for themselves, for their own passions and their own glory. They're going to be doing things according to what they want to do, not what God says to do. 
And it'll be amongst the world. The entire world will be like this. And it's kind of like in Revelation 18 and 19 when he talks about Babylon. He says, come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins and the judgment that's coming upon her. Now, in Jeremiah, it says that Babylon will never be reforged. It says it'll be a dwelling place for the hyenas and jackals. It will never be inhabited by man again. Literally, that's what God says. And I take him at his word. So what in the world is Revelation 18 talking about? It's talking about the proverbial Babylon. It's the land of mixture, is what Babylon even means. It's a land in which there's going to be this mixture amongst it. There's going to be idolatry, there's going to be paganism, there's going to be all kinds of mixture in which God's people are supposed to be holy. But he says in Revelation 18, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. There's going to come a time in which this proverbial Babylon is reforged and it's going to be this place of mixture in which there's this semblance of God. You can go back and study Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar had a semblance of realizing who God was, even declaring that God, Jehovah, is the God of all gods. And yet he stayed mixed within his paganism. Much like Constantine even at the formation of the Roman Catholic Church, Constantine did the exact same thing. He wanted to say that he had this faith in Jesus Christ because of what Jesus could do or had done for him, but he wanted to maintain his paganistic beliefs. Hence, that's where we get Roman Catholicism and the establishment of it back in about 305 AD. That's where we get the holiday Easter. That's where we get the, you know, even you could even go into Christmas and some of that stuff where he combined paganistic, ritualistic type things and he combined it with, with Christianity and values within the Christian um, circuit that was there. And I could go deeper on that one, but I'm going to kind of leave it as it is right there. The point is, is that this Babylon is going to be a land of mixture and he tells very specifically to the church, come out of her, my people, lest you share in her sins. And the judgment that's coming on her. I want my people to be holy and set apart. And I do not want them to be a people of mixture. For they need to be holy. As I am holy. And he says, just as it was in the days of Noah. Let me give you a little backtrack on that. Noah uh, was born from a guy named Lamech. Who was 777 years old. Which I've always found fascinating. Because seven is, is often referenced as the number of God. It's a number of completion. All right? Three is oftentimes the number of perfection. And so you have three sevens. You have complete perfection. Okay, represented by three sevens, just as 666 is complete imperfection. It's of the flesh. All right? and, and oftentimes you look in Revelation when it says the mark of the beast. Um, is that going to be a physical mark? Well, it very well might be. But I also believe that there's this concept of triple six being a number of man. It's the number of flesh. It's complete imperfection. 777 is complete perfection. Now that's a side note in numerologies and symbologies going through scripture. However, Lamech was complete perfection. And here is his son, whose name literally means arrest from your works. Now, you don't have to be a Bible scholar to kind of see the similarity there. That you have this son that is born from complete perfection and his job is going to bring a rest for the works or from the works of the people. And then you have this wooden vessel that brings salvation to these other uh, people that come into this ark who wasn't because of their own righteousness as Genesis tells us. Exactly as this. It was not because of their righteousness but because of Noah's were they allowed to enter in. 
sound familiar? And he says, and just as it was in those days, in the days of Noah, when destruction came upon people, except for the ones who were abiding in this vessel of wood with this righteous man who is to give a rest from the works born from perfect perfection or complete perfection. Those were the only ones who were spared from it. I, I, I really hope you see the connection that's there. If you don't, go back and study it and ask God to give you a deeper understanding of it. And what were they doing? They were eating and drinking. They were being merry, marrying and giving in marriage. They were building and planting, buying and selling. Their life existed for them and themselves alone. And we talked about this in Luke chapter 12. We talked about it in Luke chapter 14. We'll talk about it again in Luke chapter 21. And just as a reminder of what I had talked about in Luke chapter 21, here's what he says. But watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life. And that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. For it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. But stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. He says, you better watch yourselves. Because all around you is going to be a Babylon who's all about themselves. And let me just tell you, a lot of people think that that Babylon reference is America. It's a proverbial parallel and reference to America in which so many people, even Christians, professing Christians in the church, are eating and drinking and their lives are about their family. Their lives are about what they're building and planting. Their lives are about whatever it is that they are buying and selling. And it's not about Jesus. And he says, as it was in the days of Noah when all of the world got destroyed except for these eight people. So it will be in the days of the Son of Man. When people will be living it for themselves. They are not living for the glory of God. And I think even if you're listening to this right now, you know if you're really living for the glory of God or for your own. And let me just tell you, it's a dangerous road to be playing to try to say that you have fire insurance through Jesus Christ, but live for yourself. Jesus calls it being lukewarm. And he says, I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth. You need to be zealous and repent. And praise God, he is forgiving through Jesus Christ to do so. And he goes on, he says, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. And then he goes on in verse 31, he says, on that day, when that day comes, when Jesus comes, and Jesus himself doesn't even know the day or the hour, only the Father knows. But when that day comes and the Father looks to him and he says, go, he's going to come back. And that day there's going to be a reckoning on all of mankind. Which side of that fence are you going to be on? Because let me just tell you, if you're basing which side of the fence you're on simply because at one point in your life you prayed a prayer, but your life is no longer reflecting that that is glorifying Jesus Christ, the gospel, and living as a soldier, and you're more like a civilian, let me tell you, that day is going to come upon you like a trap. And he's going to stand there knocking at that door, and you ain't going to be listening to open it. Because you're not, you aren't listening, you're too distracted. And you won't get in. You're like, wait a second, no, I prayed that prayer, and that pastor told me that I was sealed till the day of redemption. Uh, that, that, that when I prayed that prayer, that, that nothing could take me from his hand. Let me just tell you, there is a whole lot more to the gospel than just that. 
and you have not necessarily been misinformed, but you haven't been informed completely. Because Matthew 10.22 says, the one who endures to the end will be saved. It doesn't say, the one who endures to the end was saved, as if it was a proof of their salvation. He says, no, 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 no. The one who endures to the end will be saved. Hebrews 10.36 says, you have need of endurance so that after you have done the will of God, you will receive what is promised. There are so many warning passages out there for the endurance of the saints. And that is our job through the grace that God gives to us in Jesus Christ. Don't let this day come upon you like a trap. I love what he says here in 32 where he gives them a charge. It's not a question. He's not, he's not saying, hey guys, y'all remember what Lot's wife? Like I'm a little fuzzy on the details. Could y'all tell me? I mean, he's not doing that. He's actually charging them. The punctuation on this one is not a question mark. It is a period. He says, remember Lot's wife. He's telling them, I want you to remember what took place to Lot's wife. When I called them out and they were on the outskirts of Sodom and I said, do not look back. And what did Lot's wife do? She looked back and she turned to a pillar of salt and was destroyed along with Sodom and Gomorrah. He's giving them a charge to say, do not look back to your old ways, to the old ways of the flesh, to the days in which you are living for yourself. I want you to keep going forward. And that's kind of the premise of this entire podcast that I'm giving to you, is this charge to keep moving forward. Do not settle. Do not just uh, be content with where you're at and say, you know what, I'm just kind of good where I'm at. I'm going to kind of live in both worlds. Let me just tell you, that is a double-minded or two-spirited man, and the Bible has a very specific warning for that, both in James 1 and in many other places. Listen to what he says in Psalms chapter 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season, and its leaf does not wither, and all that he does he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish." Do you see the progression in this? He says, blessed is the man who walks not in the council, nor stands in the seat of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law that God has given to us through Jesus Christ in this new covenant. We're fast forwarding from what was to what is now in looking at Psalms, but the progressional system is still the same. See, oftentimes what people do is, is they're walking, but then they decide to take it easy and they begin to just kind of stand and rest for a little bit because now their legs are tired, they're winded, and it's too hot. So they're like, man, let me just rest. And I'll just tell you, point blank, the last two or three years, man, I've been standing. I've been doing a few things, moving around here and there. I've got a little, little movement to my body, but it has been mostly standing. And we're not commanded to just stand or sit. And we're not even commanded to walk. Hebrews 12 tells us we're commanded to run. And my charge to you is to run. Don't just walk. Man, God's dealing with me on some things right now. And he's trying to get me back up on that horse. And there's some resistance that's there. Because there's still some trust issues that I'm working through. They're still both with God and with man. 
there's still healings that have to be done. And I've been saying this for a long time. And I know that eventually God's going to get a hold of my heart. And he's going to end up um, <laughs> doing things in and through me. To him be the glory for it. But let me just tell you, there will be a judgment for me. That even right now, that if, if that sickle comes and it starts to, to swipe through the harvest, I would stand before the judgment seat of Christ and I would have to give an account. Why won't you run it? And no excuse in the book is going to do. And so my charge to us is to, if, if you are looking at it, you're like, man, I, yeah, I kind of sat down. Man, get up. Start walking. Learn how to run again. If you've never run, then let me just tell you, get going. Because it is the best thing. And so my charge in this sermon or this podcast is for all of us to take a step to move forward in faith. And that's part of what I've, I've tried to do in the last two or three weeks for myself. Is there some steps that I've taken as like, you know, I, I wasn't quite ready to do it. I wasn't quite ready to, to meet with some individuals. I wasn't quite, quite ready to even lead a, a journey group as I did yesterday. Um, I wasn't quite ready. I didn't feel ready. I didn't feel equipped. I didn't feel these things. But in faith, I chose to just go ahead and set those things aside and forget about those things and just do what I know God has called me to do in that moment. And let me just tell you, he worked. He did his thing. And it was good to feel like a tool again in his toolbox. That God was using me for something. And it's been a long time since I felt that. And it only came because I chose to move forward in faith. And so while that might have been a small step for me, I'm hoping we all take small steps to move forward in faith and see what God will do through us and in us. And so, move forward. Walk in the footsteps of faith. Choose to run this race with endurance. Look into Jesus, the one who set the bar for the faith at the highest level. And he says, now I want you to go try to attain that through the grace that I will give to you. You want to be blessed. You want to have all that you do prosper. And I'm not talking about physical riches. I'm not talking about physical prospering. I'm talking about spiritually. You want to live the life that you were called to live. Walk forward in faith and not by sight. Y'all be blessed.